This is the St. Longinus's Baptism Podcast Channel. This is episode 39. What you think the Catholic Church is, it isn't. First a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, oh, I'm sorry. All that I am, all that I have, and all I do, that I do, shall be consecrated to the service, honor, glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. So, the title of this episode is, obviously it's aimed at Basically, anyone who isn't a uh, a set of a contest, and for those of you who do not know what set of a contest means, basically they uh, they believe in pre the pre Vatican II Catholic Church. They believe that the pre uh, that the Vatican II Council was heretical, and they do not recognize any of the clergy or popes. That came after the Vatican II Council. Vatican II Council. So this is basically to the uninitiated. This is kind of a. Uh, I I don't want to do a Tim Pool and say it's complicated because it really isn't. I mean, it takes some research, sure, but uh, I, I'm not a research student, and I've dug up, and, and by the way, um, information, I mean true information about the nature of Freemasonry, it's not impossible to come by, but it is difficult, but even with the, the little amount I've been able to dig up, um it's it's not hard to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now for my I honestly speaking, I don't think I have any regular lists. I there's one that I know of, but other than him, as far as I know, I have no regular listeners. But in case I do, um it will be noted that in the past, oh, I don't know, 20 to 25 episodes, I've been hammering Freemasonry. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, been at it like a uh, dog with a bone. And um, there's a reason for this. Now, I normally put resources in the show notes. Um, in this particular case, I've listed this book in at least one or two episodes. It would be redundant. Yes, I know that not everybody... Not everybody uh, listens to all my episodes, but... If you're listening, 
and you can understand English, you should be able to find the materials I'm going to be talking about. The majority of the information that I've received about Freemasonry has come from the book um, Freemasonry Unmasked, The Grand Orient Oh, I'm sorry. The Grand Orient Freemasonry Unmasked by Monsignor George Dillon. Um, last time I checked, I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon, but um, there is a traditional Catholic Books website that allows you to download uh, traditional Catholic books for free. So you could read it on your tablet, your computer, your phone. But in that book, he gives an excellent overview. Although like anything else, um, the results are mixed. Um, he hints at the Masonic origins of the American Revolution, but doesn't entirely set it out. Um, and he, I think he's an Irish priest from the 1870s. This book was published in the 1870s. So maybe he was unfamiliar or the book was aimed at a European audience, but he doesn't really directly speak on the Masonic origins of the American government. And in any case, well, it, it, it does matter. Uh, so, in this book, he, like I said, it's an overview. It's not necessarily a, an exhaustive, in-depth study. But he, he gives an overview. And... Prior to the Reformation, uh, I'm sorry, not the Reformation, the Protestant Revolt, there were secret societies whose sole purpose was to undermine the Catholic Church. Now, for those of you who don't know, before the Protestant Revolt, Europe was more or less united under the Catholic Church and this social construct was known as Christendom. And without getting too deep into theological weeds, you had Catholicism in um, Western Europe, you had Catholicism and in uh, Eastern Europe, you had uh, Greek Orthodoxy. But up until, I want to say the 1100s, both Greek, or, well, as I said, um, you, you, you had Latin Catholicism in Western Europe, and then in Eastern Europe, you had um, what was known as Greek Catholicism. And they basically split apart in the 1100s. But 
the the main purpose of me um the my main purpose is just to kind of give you a basic outline of what's going on so around I believe in the book he he sets the secret societies around the 1300s or the 1400s and these secret societies were their their sole purpose was to undermine the authority of the Catholic Church and as a byproduct of this main goal that they had, they wanted to secularize society. In other words, they wanted to make uh, they wanted to make Catholic rulers no longer subject to the rule of the Catholic Church, which in and of itself is is horrible because forget what you've heard about the so-called dark ages and you know the obscuritism or whatever garbage that the masons have been handing you in your history classes catholic europe prior to the protestant revolt for the most part for the most part most Catholic kings and princes were subject to their either their local bishops or the Pope. So if they were mistreating their subjects, if they were flouting the church law, they had to answer to either the local priest or the Pope himself. And he basically kept those guys in check. Unlike our, our, our American presidents of today, who are a law unto themselves and break basically break their own constitution and are not held to account. But this is not political in, in that way. It's just pointing out a fact of modern society. So in this, in these secret societies, they were working toward the dismemberment of what was known as Christendom, which is basically Catholic Western Europe, and the dismantling of the church's uh, power with, with, you know, basically freeing the kings and princes from the oversight of the Catholic Church. Now, in this book, I don't believe I could be mistaken because it's been a couple of weeks since I've read the book, but I don't believe he draws any connection between the Protestant leaders, leadership, Calvin, Luther, um, John Knox, to, to these secret societies. Um... But what he what he does point out is um even if these secret societies were not involved in the Protestant revolt, when these Protestant leaders broke with the Catholic Church, even if the secret societies weren't involved, these 
whether knowingly or unknowingly, they did the bidding of the secret societies because that's what the Protestant revolt did. It basically unmoored Christendom from each other instead of one united uh, entity under one religion, now you had separate entities with separate religions. And in this book, he, he hints at that the various secret societies were working in the background and around the 1700s there it, it's it's kind of hard to explain i'm going to do the best i can what happened in the 1700s were the first freemasonic lodges were established in england i believe the first lodge was in york and then the second lodge was in London, although there was also a lodge in Scotland, but because at least in Freemasonry in the 1700s, you had what was known as the Scottish Rite, which was based in the main lodge in Scotland. I couldn't tell you what city. And then in the um, second Rite, they called it the York Rite which was the, uh, York, England, and the Mas uh, Masonic Lodge there. And this was established in England in the early 1700s. Now, this was before... This was before um, America had broken from the uh, from the English crown and they were secret in the sense that the best analogy I can use for a secret society is it kind of operates under the same principle or maybe vice versa of a intelligence agency and any intelligence agency, it's broken up into different bureaus and they have agents of influence. And sometimes you'll have two agents of influence who are operating on entirely separate principles and might not even know that they're working for the same intelligence agency. It's the same way with masonry. So a lot of times they would establish little, um, what they call uh, temples and one temple would not be aware of another temple's existence even if it was less than 10 or 15 miles away. They, they would be totally unaware of each other and they could be working to opposite principles. Well, in around the 1700s, when the secret societies started calling themselves Freemasonry, and 
they, um, you know, they, they kind of went public when they opened their lodges, but nobody knew what they were about. All they had was rumor and innuendo to go on. One of the one of the founders of one of the European secret societies was called Adam Weisskopf. Now, I believe he was affiliated with the Bavarian um, royalty in Germany at that time. And he, he kind of laid out the basis for what the goals were of masonry. And one of the goals was, was they knew that Catholicism was the one true church. And so they, and I've already mentioned this, you know, the, um, the previous secret societies, thanks to the Protestant revolt, had already accomplished one of their ends, which was the destruction of Christendom. And once, once the Protestant revolt happened, even Catholic kings and princes were basically a law unto themselves. Because Christendom had become fragmented. And to put the best example that I can on this is, say you had a prince in um, Normandy, France. And he decides, he starts mistreating his peasants. And he decides that he's going to follow a heretical sect. When Christendom existed, the Pope could go to his local neighboring princes and say, hey, you know, well, first of all, he could excommunicate that prince in Normandy, France. And then secondly, he could he could tell the, the prince's neighbors, hey, um, Prince so-and-so is in he's a heretic and a schismatic. So if you want to go in there and depose him, um, you can, you can go ahead and do that. And, you know, um, it, they, 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 they would tell, um, they, they would give special privileges to the princes who, who went in, you know, to de de depose the prince in Normandy who was a heretic. So that's how they kept order in Christendom. And once the Protestant revolt happened, you didn't since you didn't have that unity, everybody was basically doing their own thing. So they'd already accomplished one of their goals. But and that that that's another thing too. Freemasonry at its basis. There I don't want to get too complicated in this because I'm talking about the Catholic Church not being what you think of as the Catholic Church and not being the Catholic Church. But there were two branches or, or two, two modes of thought within uh, the secret societies. One actually worshiped Satan 
and wanted to cause the downfall of Catholicism because they realized it was the one true religion. The other segment was agnostic. You know, um, they didn't they didn't necessarily worship Jesus Christ and they didn't worship Satan. They just wanted man to be the ultimate authority. They, in, in, instead of living in a God-centric society, they wanted to live in a, a human being-centric society. And, um, but these two, these two factions realized that they were working for the same end goal, which was the destruction of the Catholic Church. So this Adam Weisskopf guy, he basically gave the outline of what he wanted the secret societies to do. And this was before Freemasonry was established openly in England. Now, in the late no, not not the late. Um. Oh, sorry, guys. One of Weisskopf's goals also was to infiltrate the Catholic Church, and I've mentioned this on other episodes. And it's it is a uh, legitimate. I would I want to say legitimate, but it is a tactic that. If you want to undermine an organization or an institution, you, you slip your followers into that institution and you allow them to plant the seeds of its own destruction. And that was his goal. So he started trying, he, he actually started <laughs> infiltrating the Catholic Church in the 1700s. And the reason um, that I know this is, and this, this wasn't only in the book about Freemasonry. It, 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 you you got to read some of the papal uh, encyclicals that were written after the, uh, well, after the French Revolution. And there were a couple popes prior to Leo XIII who, who actually condemned Freemasonry outright in like the late 1800s. But there were a couple of previous popes who wrote encyclicals denouncing secret societies. And, and they gave the principles underlining the this what this uh the the principles that the secret society was trying to inject into catholicism now it's uh, like anything i do it's going to take me a minute to where i'm going just bear with me it will bear fruit so the catholic church from after the french revolution was well aware of secret societies were trying to undermine it from within. But because Christendom itself had been fragmented 
and royal prerogatives were basically being tossed out the window. And, you know, they, they were trying to, quote unquote, liberalize the governments of Europe, even if a prince or a king was, was a devout Catholic, because of the Freemasonic influences all over Europe, you know, they could do, they could only do so much, but they were being undermined from within. And so it was a two-pronged attack. One was to liberalize government and destroy the power of the royalty. And the other part of it was to infiltrate the Catholic Church and inter uh, interject doctrines and teachings that were anti-Catholic at their base. Okay. So, as I said, starting after the French Revolution, there were popes who wrote encyclicals against the secret societies. Now, what does this have to do with the Catholic Church of today, of present era, not being the true Catholic Church? Well, as I already said, they started inf the, the Freemasons started infiltrating their agents of influence within the church. And these agents of influence, and the Freemasons knew this was not going to be an overnight job. This was going to take decades, maybe centuries, to realize the fruition. But these agents of influence, influence to if they if they were a local parish priest to their local parishioners, they seemed like good pious men. And in secret, they were interjecting heresies into into Catholic teachings. And from the time of the French Revolution up until Vatican II, and it, you know, the the Catholic Church is like any other organization. Um, if the leadership is good, you're going to have more success than if the leadership is lukewarm or weak. And that's what it boiled down to. Some popes were, they, they, they had good intentions, they just lacked the will. And other popes went after the, the Freemasons' hammer and tongs. So, by, and this is just a thumbnail sketch, um, St. Pius X wrote an encyclical against modernism, what she called the synthesis of all heresies. And Pope Leo XIII had also written several encyclicals um, against the modern, um, the modernist heresies that were being interjected into the Catholic Church 
prior to his pontificate and during his pontificate. And as I said, the Catholic Church is like any other any other uh, organization. And after Pius X died, um, the popes that came afterward were not as diligent against the modernist heirs as he was. So, a lot of the modernists who had who had gone underground, if not uh, excommunicated by Pius X, started coming out in the open. Now these popes, they they to various degrees, to various degrees, wrote against the heirs of modernism, but once again. There's an old saying in America, your, your chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church at that time had uh, a few weak links. Now, like I said, there was a two-pronged attack. So you had the agents of influence in the church introducing heresies into the church and then you had the agent political agents of uh, Freemasonry who were introducing the the uh, the political heirs of democracy um, and all of its intended heirs into European governments. Now, in the case of America, and this is going to be important, in the case of America, um, it was Freemasons had already founded the American government. And, you know, you, you get butt mad all you want to, but our Bill of Rights, if you read what the tenets of Freemasonry are and the American Bill of Rights, and I'm just, when I speak of this, I'm not talking all, I think it's 25 amendments. I'm talking about the first 10, which they added on to, obviously, afterward. But, uh, you know, all... This this is why I keep hammering the free the, the origins the Freemasonic origins of America. Because if you do not understand that what is known, the first ten amendments to the American Constitution, if you do not know that their basis comes from Freemasonic ideas, then you're not going to understand the nature of the government that you think is looking out for your best interests. You know, and it, quite frankly, well, no, human beings are who they are. So the fact that there are a lot of people running around thinking that their government cares about them comes as no surprise to me.
Anyhow, so there was a two-pronged approach. Now, America, like I said, Europe had started out Catholic. Europe had already started out Catholic. So, they, the, the, the Freemasons had to work harder at secularizing society in Europe, although the Protestant revolt did help a great deal, than, than, than the American um, society. And to put it charitably, a lot of Catholics in America at the time of Pope Leo XIII's encyclical against Americanism, which was basically denouncing what was known as political liberalism, were so grateful because, you know, they had come from either Protestant countries where they had been persecuted or they had... Uh, well, that's basically what it was. I mean, they came from England. Ireland was Catholic, but it was under British rule. Uh, you had Germans from Catholic states that, you know, Germany was pretty much Protestant. And you get what I'm trying to get at. A, a lot of the Catholic uh, immigrants, you know, thought it was a great idea when they came to America, that ostensibly the American government had no dog in the fight. You know, they could practice their Catholicism in peace. Now, this brings me to an old adage where they say, if it's too good to be true, it is. And this was the case. Because when Pope Leo XIII gave gave his encyclical against Americanism in 1899, which was aimed at the American hierarchy. For the sake of charity, I'm going to say, because I don't know these men's intentions, but they downplayed, they downplayed the, the heresy of Americanism, which putting it as simply as I can, was saying that political liberalism is a heresy. It goes against everything the Catholic Church stood for. And they downplayed it. So, a lot of sincere American Catholics didn't, you know, and because the American government was Masonic from the get-go, they're, they're pumping propaganda and ideology into these Catholics' heads. And so, a lot of, a lot of American Catholics from the mid-1800s onward, I'm not saying all, but a lot of them were American first and Catholic second, and that's not, that's in an inversion of how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be a Catholic first and a American second. Anyhow, so 
I can jump right into Vatican II. So, as I said, the Freemasons, by, by the late 1800s, they pretty much had secularized European society, American society, because it was a Masonic government, was already secularized. And so, all they needed to do at that point was to totally destroy Catholicism as an institution. Now, previous church councils, and this, this is a matter of, just read about the church councils. Previous Catholic church councils have been called to address heirs or heirs or heresies that were prevalent in Catholic countries at whatever time period that they were called in. So after Pope Pius XII died, um, there was some chicanery. Some people call it conspiracy theory. If you read into the circumstances, into the election of um, Ron Colley, you know, John the 23rd, so to speak, there, 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 there was enough uh, chicanery there that you can, you can make the case that he was illegitimately elected. But in any regard, it was well known that he was, he was, he was a heretic. But yet, somehow, he gets elected as Pope, and the first thing he does was to call the Vatican II Council. Now, the reason I brought up the issue of church councils being called in times of um, error and heresy was because at the time that Vatican II was called, they, there, there was no, I mean, obviously the church has always dealt with heresies, there, but there was no open outside of Protestantism and the schism of the uh, Greek church. Other than that, there were no major doctrinal um, issues at hand. Now, on the surface, at least in America, I can't speak for Europe, you know, a lot of the boomer set of Acantis, uh priests and bishops, oh, the church was never in better shape. And by the numbers, sure, the numbers look good. They were high. But given what happened after Vatican II, I think that calls into question of the numbers game. But anyway, so... They they called Vatican II, and some of the some of the uh, the Orthodox uh, uh, the Orthodox uh, prelates were asking, you know, uh, Ron Colley, They were asking him. They were like, "Why are we calling this council? 
There, there, there are no major heresies. There are no major divisions within the church. Why are we doing this? And Ron Colley gave them some double talk and they swallowed their doubts and they went along with it. Now it turns out, and you got to remember the timeline here. We're talking the early 1960s. For you younger generations, the interwebs didn't exist. You had TV, you had radio, you had newspapers, you had books. And you had telephone. So, bear with me when I, when I try to explain the situation. Ron Colley could go to a group of laymen, say, in Hamburg, Germany, and say one thing. Fly to northern Italy, we'll say Venice, and say the complete opposite to a group of laymen in Venice. And because you didn't have your little interwebs, you didn't have your nice little smartphone or your computers, you had no way of verifying it that he'd made two contradictory statements Unless you happen to know somebody who might have been at those, you know. And it took years at that time. It took years for the truth to come out. And by, you know, human beings what they are, especially Americans, you know, we, we, we consider five minutes ago ancient history. So if Ron Colley had made two separate uh, contradictory statements... You know, in 1960, the truth probably didn't come out by until like 67 or 68. By that time, it's too late. There's nothing to be done. Okay? So, but there were rumblings. There were rumblings. The rumor mill, as I said in a previous episode, the rumor mill is real. It does exist. It's not always right. But sometimes it is. And the rumor mill was saying that some of the... Oh, and that's another thing too. When Ron Colley became Pope, he started promoting uh, priests and prelates who had been exiled by the Orthodox Pius Twelfth or Pius Eleventh, And he started putting them inside the Vatican in preparation for Vatican II. <sighs> so, why am I telling you all this? Because the rumor mill stated before Vatican II was ratified that the goal of of um, Roncalli and his successor Montini was that they were going to update the church. They were going to make it into a modern church for modern times, for modern people. Now, for those of you um, who are unaware, church teaching prior to Vatican II said that the church that that the church is objective not subjective the only 
what that means is objective means it never changes. The church of the 1300s is going to be the same church of the 1700s, which is going to be the same church of the 1950s. You know, um, certain things might change. The doctrines don't. Subjective means, well, you it's, it's uh, situational ethics. Well, at a certain time in a certain place, we need to change the rules for, to suit this situation. And that was the rumor mill that they, they were going to, you know, they were going to make the church more fit for modern people. They were going to try to make the traditional Catholic church, they were going to update it for the modern world, which the popes since the 1700s had been railing against. But under the Vatican II Council, they were going to change all that. Now, obviously, remember the timeline here. There's no interwebs. So rumors were popping up that, you know, uh, Bishop so-and-so said this. They were doing such and such and such and such diocese in Germany, you know, but there's no interwebs. So a lot of people did not know that there was a revolution going on inside of their very precious church. And the easiest way, the simplest way I can put this is Vatican II, the reason why it is heretical is because it contradicted previous church teachings, previous church dogmas. And I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. Um, in, in the documents themselves, there, first of all, it has always been a te uh, teaching of the, the Catholic Church that when a, a council or a... Um, Pope or a uh, archbishop writes either a teaching or a doctrine, it's got to be clear and concise. If you read the Vatican II documents, to, to, to put it in terms that an American can understand, it's like the sexual harassment regulations at your local job. It's worded in such a way that sexual harassment could mean whatever, whatever the person reading it wants it to, to, to say. And that was the same with Vatican II. It was worded in such a way that if, if you were orthodox, you could read it and say, okay, yeah, there, I see that. And if you were unorthodox, you could say, oh yeah, that's good too. It didn't blatantly and obviously so if you're trying to infiltrate well they had already at this point infiltrate but if you're trying to revolutionize the church you're not going to wave banners and flags and and send out mailers saying oh by the way we're gonna you know the, the church that you grew up with traditionally 
um, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna blow it up from the inside and we're, you know, we're totally changing it. Even those guys that did the Vatican II revolution knew that if the average Catholic in the pews found out about it, they would have a, a absolute revolt. And that's where you get the expression boiling the frog. You put a frog in water and you, you turn the water to, to warm it up and then eventually you boil the frog. Now, like I said, I want to try to keep this simple as I can. So, a lot of the prelates that did Vatican II, it later came out due to some very, very intense research. A lot of the prelates, and when I say prelates, I'm talking about bishops and cardinals who attended Vatican II were out-and-out masons. They were members of, of Masonic lodges. And so, because they're masons, their authority is not to God. Their authority is to whoever they're getting their marching orders from. And their, their um, strategists were smart. Because they realized if they could keep the majority of Catholics in the dark while they revolutionized it, and they could capture the magisterium, which writes the doctrine, if they could capture the churches and they could make the priests do what they wanted them to do, and the bishops were already falling into line with what they wanted to do, that they could have literal apostates, in other words, traitors from the faith, as popes, cardinals, bishops, and priests, but because they, they occupied the Vatican and they had all the churches and stuff, to the average uninformed Protestant and Catholic, for that matter, or secular, for that matter, this... To all intents and purposes, this was going to be their idea of the Catholic Church. You know, the child sex scandals, which, you know, every secularist Catholic hater likes to bring up, and they're doing it out of ignorance. This, this, this was done on purpose. This, this was meant to discredit the actual Catholic Church. The church it happened in was an imposter and a fake, but for all intents and purposes, people didn't thought that this was the actual Catholic Church. And so, you know, a lot of people, rightfully so, were, were, were shocked when it came out that, you know, what they thought were Catholic priests were diddling little kids. And so this brings down discredit and dishonor. And, you know, anybody who's read about these abuse cases, no priest that I'm aware of, outside of a few that got caught by the secular authorities, ever suffered punishment. The majority of them are still at large. Now, to close out, to close out this uh, 
episode, I, I want to give you the best analogy that I can give. During World War II, the last Western European battle was the Battle of the Bulge. It was the last major battle. And part of the German, it's when the Germans tried to attack the Allies and um, send them back to Normandy. But a part of their strategy was, was there was a group of SS commandos who got a bunch of American uniforms and a bunch of American equipment. And their goal was, like I said, these were American speakers. Their goal was, was to, to if they found an uh, isolated American platoon, shoot them up, to switch signposts, to give false orders, just to create chaos and confusion. Now, if you're some GI and you're isolated in the forests of Belgium and uh, an SS German guy wearing an American uniform comes up to you and says, hey, did you hear the news? Why? Your company commander, he's, he's one of those SS commandos. You need to shoot him. As far as you know, if the guy sounds American, he, he as far as you know, this is... This is a, a fellow GI. And what he's telling you, you know, maybe part of the rumor mill, it may be the truth. At the very least, you're going to look at your company commander and be suspicious. And that's the, that was the same principle behind Vatican II. What I'm trying to say is, true Catholicism was prior to Vatican II. The Vatican II Council. Everything after the Vatican II Council from 1965, well, actually from 1960 onward, it's, it's, it's meant to mislead you. It's meant to, to discredit Catholicism in the eyes of the world. Unfortunately, it succeeded in most cases. So, I know I'm an imperfect instrument. Um, if, if, I, if I were more talented, I'd be able to do this more concisely. But I do the best I can. So, I thank you for listening. I really appreciate you giving me almost an hour of your time. And um, I pray, I hope and pray you got something out of this. Um, I'm praying for all of you and I'd like to see as many people get to heaven as possible. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye.